0: Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Epen, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my co-host, Sunday Mint. Hello. And my producer, Eric Ostrich. Hello. This season's theme is Adopting Elixir, and today we're joined by special guest Jen Gamble from Very. How are you, Jen?
1: I'm great. Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: Super glad to have you. I have been dying to have you on the show since I heard your keynote at ElixirConf 2020. I was, I think, probably sitting in a hot tub in Mexico on the, or well, whatever Oh that Yes, you were hosting
1: in a pretty cool location, I remember. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> and you gave an excellent introduction to machine learning, I think, for Elixir developers. And we just had the announcement in the last couple months of a new machine learning library from Jose Valim that is sort of setting up the community to become a much bigger player in the machine learning community. So we're going to talk about that today, but I want you to start off just by telling us about Vary and your role there and what kind of work you're doing.
1: Yeah, so Vary is an IoT engineering firm, and so we build products for our customers. Many of the products have machine learning and or IoT, hardware, firmware, physical device components to them. And I lead the data science practice at Vary. So I pretty much have at least some high level hand in all of our projects that have a machine learning component to them.
0: And how big is the data science team over at Vary?
1: We're still relatively small, actually. Plug, we're hiring right now. We'll be growing a lot this year. So right now, official data scientists, we only have about five, but we have a number of software engineers who are also, they can kind of sling around some you know, scikit-learn models and, <laughs> and whatnot, and number of data engineers as well. So small but mighty and growing quickly.
2: Can you speak to what the language markup looks like for a data science team, maybe traditionally and maybe something that you're doing different, or are you just following the traditional path?
1: Yeah. So I think that a few years ago, data science was probably split relatively equally between Python and R were the two most popular languages, but Python has been really taking off in the past number of years. And a lot of the kind of exploding popularity of Python as a language overall is because of its use in machine learning and data science and their popularity. But that's only really for the model training part of it, because most of the most popular kind of machine learning model open source libraries are in Python. But for example, the project that I spoke about at ElixirConf has an Elixir backend. And so it's an IoT project, like an industrial IoT product. So we have, you know, a PLC on an industrial line and Elixir is the like on some firmware on a device talking to the PLC and then streaming the data up to the cloud, whole bunch of kind of AWS resources and infrastructure up there with an Elixir backend. And then also a bunch of Python and databases and things like that in the backend as well. And then React front end. So we're kind of <laughs> multi-language system.
0: So you mentioned a couple of terms already, scikit-learn, models, et cetera, that we're going to get around to defining. But before we do that, we do like to just learn a little bit about you. And I think this conversation around the traditional machine learning stack leads to the question, which is like, how did you learn machine learning and, and data science? And if those things mean something different, maybe.
1: So I definitely come from a more academic background. It's relatively common in the field of data science right now for people to have come from you know, maybe getting a master's or a PhD in some type of mathematical or analytical field. And so I did the same thing. My undergrad was math. My master's was statistics. My PhD was in electrical engineering. And the lab that I was in during my PhD had a lot of people doing things that are now kind of under the umbrella of machine learning. So natural language processing, computer vision, things like this. (laughs) <laughs> and I actually remember a moment that I had, this was probably in my maybe third year of my PhD. And one of my office mates had a textbook on their desk that was called something like machine learning, a probabilistic perspective. And I'm like, what is this machine learning that everybody's talking about? I hear the word used a lot these days. I don't really know what it means. And I opened the book and started leafing through and looking at the different <laughs> you know, subjects and content. And I was like, oh, I know this stuff. (laughs) This is like a bunch of like regression and classification and statistics and neural networks. And I didn't even like realize that the things that I had already been learning were actually machine learning. And so I kind of like fell into data science a little bit. The first company that I came out to Silicon Valley to work for after grad school, the reason that I came to work for them is because the methods, like the specific mathematical methods that they were using were very related to things that I had studied in grad school. And so it seemed like a good fit. And I thought, I've never worked in industry. I was previously kind of heading for this academic career. I'd like to go see what it's all about. And then once I started working on these kind of real world applications, I got more and more addicted to this kind of fast feedback loop. Like, oh look, they're using our stuff. Like we're making you know, an impact, building something with <laughs> with real users versus this more abstract academic setting that I had previously been in.
2: You mentioned this academic background, and it's really fascinating to me because we come across so many different people from so many different slices of life, so many diverse backgrounds. And I actually personally don't know that I've come across a lot of people from the academia space. When you were going through and you were like, I'm going to go for my master's, I'm going to go for my PhD. Did you have a vision for like your your five-year plan, your 10-year plan? Did it include, you know, having a doctor in front of your name or was it, you know, <laughs> what did you see yourself doing and how is it different? I've always taken,
1: I guess, the somewhat naive approach of whatever I thought looked most interesting at the time and gone and done that and like made some lucky choices that ended up being hireable or like in hot job markets or this type of thing, making the transition from, they sound like kind of the same thing, but from math to statistics, to electrical engineering, and then to data science, I think it's been really valuable for me to have to kind of relearn a slightly new field a number of times where the stuff that I previously know has been relevant, but there's new terminology, new language, new preconceptions and assumptions and all of that. And so I'm really into I feel like every three, four, five years I start to get bored and like want to branch into a new field in some way.
0: I want to know a little bit more about the narrative there. Were you in school the whole time? Did you take breaks and work in the industry or did you go straight from your PhD into industry and like what was getting that first job like?
1: Yeah. So I had a kind of a break for two years in between my master's and my PhD. I worked full time, but it was still at a university and it was at like a kind of part research, part statistical consulting type of a role. So I was still publishing papers and like helping out people in the medicine and dentistry department with the statistics on their like research projects and (laughs) stuff like this. And then it actually hadn't even really occurred to me to go into industry until I was in my PhD. And because in electrical engineering, it's much more common for people to go work in industry as opposed to like mathematicians, mostly stay in academia. And so all of my coworkers, like my lab mates, they were going off to work at whatever different big tech company, <laughs> computer vision labs and whatnot. And so I was like, I've never tried this. Like maybe, maybe I should actually go see if I like industry. I had never even done an internship or literally anything in industry at all until I finished my PhD.
0: You didn't have like a job in high school waiting tables or something like that? Oh,
1: no, I did. Just not in computer science. (laughs) I worked like two full-time jobs in the summers in between school and undergrad. I was always working part-time, definitely, until my PhD when I had whatever research or teaching assistantships and that type of thing. But yeah, and also like in terms of computer science and like software engineering, in my master's, I used R a lot. And then in my PhD, it was all MATLAB. And so I didn't even start using Python heavily until I came to industry either.
0: Okay. So you grew up on MATLAB and R.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: In, in mm-hmm. Okay. So this is what I was picturing. When Sunday was asking about kind of traditional stack, I was kind of expecting the, you know, the MATLAB, the R response. And now... I hear about Julia all the time, but I don't know if they really use those in universities. Doesn't Wolfram Alpha have their own programming language now, or is that MATLAB?
1: It's different than MATLAB. They have, I know they do have their own language. In industry, in data science, Python is definitely like the most popular one these days. But, well, and also Scala to some extent, although a lot of people are using, you know, PySpark which is like essentially a Python wrapper around Scala when they want to be doing stuff in a more distributed, quote unquote, big data way.
0: So I just want to echo kind of the whole story. So we've got the frame, which is you've got a stats and math background. You went into the PhD. At that point, you're learning electrical engineering. Am I getting this right?
1: It was in an electrical engineering department, but I was really doing more math and statistics. And a lot of the stuff I was learning is now what we call machine learning and data science. It was a lot about how to look for patterns in data, how to understand high-dimensional data sets, and how to process data and make predictions and things like that.
0: Now, okay, high-dimensional data set. Remember, someone put a tack in that because we're gonna have to come back to it. Now, I think we need to start talking about okay, what are the broad concepts that someone coming in? Also, this came to mind to me to me earlier, which is that. I mean, you're a director, you probably work with people a lot. I've noticed that the people who work really well with people and have great personalities in tech almost universally have had that experience of like working while in school, you know, the part-time job thing.
1: Yeah. Interesting. That's somehow not surprising. Yeah. It's like a realistic
0: mm-hmm. perspective on the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Everyone should work in service industry at least once in their life, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, absolutely. I just want to make sure. Did we hit all the biographical things that we wanted to hit Sunday?
2: Yeah, and I just also want to echo this. It's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, you had a lot of colleagues who were leaving academia for industry. I also didn't study electrical engineering, but half of my life is electrical engineering related in terms of like all of my volunteer activities, and I come across like a hard divide. People are either in academia space or in industry. Bridging the gap is like super difficult. So it's always interesting for me to hear that somebody's moved from one to the other. And I'm definitely curious to like to see how that pattern progresses over time. It's very interesting.
1: And I think now that data science is becoming more mature as a field, there are like much faster paths into it now than there were like five, six, seven, eight years ago. There's, you know, masters of data science programs at many, many universities now. Whereas in 2012, 13, 14, 15, most of the people entering the field of data science had kind of gained those skills accidentally through some other like analytical work that they had been doing.
2: That's actually an interesting point too, that I'm curious about. Every data scientist I know or have worked with has eventually gone off to get their master's. That's not necessarily a requirement for a lot of engineers. Is that something that every data scientist like knows is on their path? Or is that just, does that give you an edge in some way?
1: I would say that probably the reason is The mathematics behind a lot of the modeling is kind of harder to learn on the job, I think. It's something that you usually have to go into like deeper study, like more formal, longer term programs to learn that type of thing. But having said that, I think that you can be a really effective data scientist in many of the roles out there without necessarily totally understanding everything that's going on under the hood mathematically for every model. Like a lot of the hardest parts about data science are more about how to frame the problem and like how to process the data and how to set up the pipelines. And they really come down to software engineering problems. And so I think really strong software engineers can like, I've seen them bridge that gap really effectively without necessarily getting super deep on the mathematical modeling side of it.
2: So you keep using this term model. I know almost nothing Not about machine learning. Yeah. <laughs> I
1: know
2: Sorry. almost nothing about machine learning. So what is, I guess, the difference, since you mentioned it, what is the difference between an elixir model and a data science model, or machine learning, I guess, model?
1: Yeah, so the way that we use the word model in data science is really something that has been trained through a process, a model training process, you could call it. It's like an output of that process. And now the model can receive inputs and give outputs where those outputs are like predictions. And so I really like the way this woman, her name is Cassie Kozerkov. She's the chief decision sciences officer or chief decision scientist or something like this at Google. And she has a lot of content online explaining machine learning and like walking through different machine learning concepts. And she has a way of talking about machine learning. I like the analogy that she uses, where she compares it to kind of typical software and like regular code is still trying to take some inputs and produce some outputs. But typically you tell the computer program how to do that you define some rules, you have some logic in there so that it knows how to go from inputs to outputs. And so by contrast, what machine learning does is what it's trying to build a system that also knows how to go from inputs to outputs, but without you explicitly telling it how to do that. What instead you need to do is provide it with a whole bunch of examples. You need to give it this data set, this training data set, which is a whole bunch of matched input output pairs. And so then this is what we call often when we talk about data, (laughs) training data, especially we're talking about having like this whole big historical data set of input output pairs that we can then use. We can provide this to a model training process. And then at the output of that, we have this trained model, which you can give it like new inputs and it can tell you what the output should be. So having seen enough examples of for this input, here's the output, for this input, here's the output, for this input, here's the output, all these different match pairs, then for new inputs that maybe it's never seen those exact examples before, it's able to predict what the output should be. And so when we talk about models, we typically mean like a trained model, which has gone through some type of offline model training process, which depends on some input training data. And then when we're thinking about using a machine learning model, particularly in like a production system, we have new data flowing through. This is like the new inputs. And then we want to be able to ping that trained model and get this output. And so that's typically called inference. So I guess like the four key terms maybe here is like data, models, training, and inference. And so the process for getting a model is training. And then the process for using a trained model Is inference.
0: So, to give an example of this, Mm -hmm. I just followed an Instagram account called Deep Tom Cruise. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: it's this guy who's a really good, like Tom Cruise impressionist already, but then he deep fakes Tom Cruise's face over his face. So, like using this example, right, I guess the training data is all the video ever of Tom Cruise and then some kind of like mapping of Tom Cruise's face onto this guy's face. And then the model is, I guess one way to think about it, a model is a mathematical formula with weights that acts as a function that takes an input and gives an output.
1: Yeah. And they can be very heavy and complicated, like a neural network, for example, could be something where there's like thousands and thousands of nodes and then edges between a bunch of the nodes, like layers of nodes and edges between them, and each edge has a different weight, and then there's some functions that are combining all of those. So you're right that it is a function, typically, but it can be a very complicated function or, like, sequence of functions. A function of (laughs)
2: functions. When you were talking about the way that the data gets matched, it was reminding me a little bit of pattern matching, but I feel like that's not exactly (laughs) what you were trying to say, but I guess is there some kind of parallel example that you can draw from pattern matching to what you were describing just now?
1: So typically with pattern matching, you have some type of similarity function that you're trying to optimize against. And so when you have like instance one and instance two, and you're trying to compare them, you have some measurements that you're taking, and then you're seeing like, okay, how similar are these to each other? And you're trying to give some number that judges similarity. And so That is a very applicable notion in machine learning. A lot of the kind of mathematics underneath the model training process is often trying to, it's doing like an optimization. It's trying to do some like determining the weights, for example, of one of these, you know, functions like a neural network. It's doing an optimization process to determine exactly how those work. But in terms of the broader setup of the entire system. The part that I am most kind of interested in that I feel like is where the real art comes into data science is the part that I call like analytically framing the problem where in many cases you have maybe some like ambiguous business problem that you're trying to solve. (laughs) And then you have a bunch of data that's available to you. And so you need to decide like, what are the predictions? What are the outputs that we're even trying to get our machine learning system to do? So uh, maybe a, a common example is something like, Netflix, like recommender system, right? So when you were giving your Twitter example, I'm assuming that this, (laughs) this account was like recommended to you somewhere, you saw it pop up in some feed.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they know I love Tom Cruise.
1: (laughs) Right, right, exactly. And so in that example, the inputs to the algorithm are probably a whole bunch of information about you. But then also, there have been a whole bunch of information about other people who Twitter kind of judges to be like you in certain ways and the way that you're currently interacting with the system and how much you're using it. And like, there's probably hundreds or thousands of variables that Twitter has about you and about every user and about your similarity to those other users. And so then when it sees other people liking certain accounts and it thinks that you're similar to those other people, then new input is you know, justice at this time on this day, looking at this screen, and then the output is what are these kind of three recommended people to follow <laughs> that we want to surface to him, right?
0: So I just want to echo, first of all, some of the broad concepts that we kind of already covered, and then I want to get an example of one of them in particular. So we're talking about models, which are, I think, in my words, a function that's been trained to give you an output that predicts something useful. You've mentioned weights. So I want to talk about weights in the context of a model. And then you've mentioned I think two different algorithms or classes of algorithm, which is one is a training algorithm and the other is an optimization algorithm, unless those are one is a subset of the other.
1: Often optimization is a technique that's used as part of a training process. Okay. There's a whole bunch of like, there's a ton of different machine learning models. And then each of them has different training processes and different optimization. Yeah.
0: So let's get there. But before we get there, I think for people who are completely math illiterate, which I think is going to be a small portion of the audience, very small, (laughs) would be like, what is the simplest example of a model, maybe from like geometry or something that you can think of? And like, what would be the weights in that circumstance?
1: Yeah. So you could think of trying to predict someone's weight given their height, You could form like, if you think about taking a bunch of people from the world and then you draw like X axis, Y axis, you have a little plot and each person you draw them on the plot by like finding their (laughs) height and weight on the two axes and put the dot for them at the place where it's their height and their weight. And you get all the people and you can see there's like, there's a lot of noise, right? So it's not like everyone follows exactly a straight line so that every single person who is, you know six foot one and a half is going to be the exact same weight. There's like a lot of variability from person to person, but there's still kind of a general trend of like people who are taller tend to be heavier. Right. And so you could take like a linear regression is one of the most kind of simple models. It's used usually as an example of like, well, let's start with something really simple. Let's do a linear regression. And so that really just means you have all the data and you fit it as best you can with a straight line. So that then any new person who comes in, you just take their height and you see where their height matches on that line. And that's your guess for their weight. And so for most people, you're gonna be pretty off. <laughs> There's exactly. gonna be a big error.
0: So this is the line of best fit, which we all learn in high school, right? Like they exactly, graph exactly. on a scatter plot. So I think we understand that concept. I'm a little bit surprised you didn't go, I mean, now that I think about it, this is a statistical example, but you could say that like the Pythagorean theorem is, a model.
1: Yeah. So this is, I guess, where we get into the notion of model as a overloaded term in general, because the word, the true definition of the word is really like an abstract representation of something. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the way you guys use it in Elixir a lot is like when you have stuff that you're storing in a database, right. Or like you have these entities and then each entity has a bunch of attributes or characteristics about it. And so kind of Here is the entity and here are its attributes. That is the model for that object or entity. Is that close to the way that you guys use the word model? Almost?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, Elixir land is a little different than other lands in computer science. (laughs) But yes, when I think of a model in the very abstract sense, it is a schematic of information regarding a specific concept or abstraction. So... Yeah, that's what I broadly mean. And then when I think about it in the math sense, I was thinking, okay, the Pythagorean theorem is the model of how to determine the lengths of a right-angle triangle. Which It's funny. I don't, I'm pulling this out of like ninth grade math, so if I'm getting it all wrong. I just, can't
2: believe you remember it, Justice. All of these words sound familiar, but I blocked them out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably don't really remember it. I was traumatized in 10th and 11th grade math, so I'm just pulling from ninth grade. So that's what I initially conceived of. But then when when you go to linear regression, I then think about, okay, well, this is a statistical model, which is sort of the base default level of data science. Is that right?
1: Although I think you're still right. Like Pythagorean theorem, you can still use it as a model and what it is mapping is like relationships between like, if you give it, you know, angles and sides, then it should be able to give you like other lengths and things like this. Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The other word that probably everybody listening knows is quadratic equation,
1: right, <laughs> which right.
0: I think is roughly mapping to a very simple linear regression. So if you could maybe, sometimes we get too deep, I don't know, audience, you can yell at me on the Slack channel if you want, but like, please like get deep, pretend that that's about the level that I'm at and I'm genuinely interested in one know.
1: Yeah. And so when you're talking about mathematical objects, like true, perfect, you know, right angle triangles, then when you apply Pythagorean theorem to those, it works out perfectly, right? You just say, okay, it's a right angle. Here's A, here's B, solve for C, right? You just get the answer and it's correct. But then if you were to go kind of take a bunch of objects in the world that looked kind of like right angle triangles, and you were to measure like two of the sides and try and use Pythagorean theorem to predict the length of this third side, you would be pretty close to right most of the time depends how finely you're measuring it and how perfect of a right angle triangle it is. Right. And so this is really the same notion is that depending on how accurately your model captures what's truly going on (laughs) with the measurements that you're taking, then you're going to be able to predict the kind of other characteristics that you care about with a lot of accuracy, or maybe with not that much accuracy in the example of trying Mm. to predict someone's, weight given their height.
2: That large data set you were talking about, does that have to do with the high dimensional data set you were talking about earlier? Or is that definition more like a complicated data set? Yeah, exactly. So if you're thinking
1: about the height versus weight example, and then you're saying, okay, I want to start getting more accurate in how to predict somebody's weight. What other things do I need to know about them? And so maybe you could like add in gender as another characteristic. Maybe you could add in BMI. Maybe you could add in something about like, muscle mass or BMI would life, give it away, lifestyle right? characteristics yeah, I or like, the... oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I'm not going by the proper BMI definition tells you. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Something that is not, this is actually a, kind of a good point because it, it happens sometimes in data science where people who don't actually understand the definitions of the fields that they're using include a variable that's actually like correlated or exactly defined by the output that they're trying to predict. And they think that they're getting really good predictions, but actually like their input data has information that is cheating. Yeah, totally cheating.
0: It's like if you're trying to predict the price of a house and you knew what the price per square foot was.
1: Exactly. And you knew how many square feet it was.
0: (laughs) Right. Okay. Okay. So what you're getting into is multidimensional, n-dimensional data sets. I think then you have to kind of talk about the role of matrices in all this and kind of Compare it to so what you just did was you said, Okay, well, given height and weight, I have a two dimensional data set. Adding additional variables to that would give you additional dimensions. So now you're dealing with a matrix of data, like a table of data, right? Yeah,
1: yeah,
0: but you can go even further than that and get three dimensional matrices, right? Four, five, or,
1: six, seven, exactly, eight,
0: yeah, n dimensional matrices. Can you kind of talk about like like what is the path to grappling with such a problem <laughs> and being useful once you've learned something
1: yeah so i mean when you really get under the hood the majority of machine learning methods like boil down to some form of linear algebra most of the time <laughs> there's like an optimization happening over matrices for like most of the machine learning that's happening so there's two questions there's one is like do you want to understand what's going on Like if you're someone who's interested in machine learning and interested in data science, then do you want to understand what's going on under the hood and be getting into like, you know, how the optimization is performed and how the weights are computed. And like, given this input data set, how do you actually get a trained model? And what does that trained model mean? And all of this type of thing. And then there's a completely kind of related but separate side of it, which is like, If you have a good understanding of the kind of categories of models and like the types of modeling approaches that are possible, then how do you kind of construct or architect like a machine learning solution to a problem? To be able to do that effectively, you don't necessarily have to be really in the weeds on how exactly each machine learning model is doing the optimization that it's doing and how the model is getting trained, but you really have to understand like What data is relevant for the problem? Like if you're trying to solve the weight height problem, like knowing some stuff about like human physiology and like what other variables you could go get about people would be much more effective than just like throwing someone's height into a fancier model to try and get a more accurate prediction about their weight.
2: So now that we've sort of laid down, I was going to say base model, hmm. I wonder why I was going to say that. Now that we've layered down a foundation for machine learning, can you speak a little bit as to how it fits in with IoT and maybe how you're using it at Vary for IoT?
1: Yeah, so the use of machine learning in general, I think the situation when it's most helpful is a situation where you want to be making some statements, some predictions, and you would have a hard time like writing down the rules to get a computer to tell it what to do. But you do have a ton of examples. You do have a ton of those, like some historical data with a bunch of input-output pairs. So think of the way that Google puts this annotation on pictures, right? It would be really difficult for a human to say, to like write down the list of rules of things to look for in an image to determine whether it was a cat or not. But if you show the algorithms, like millions and millions and millions of pictures, and you have them labeled as containing a cat and not containing a cat, then the algorithms can learn and like you can show it a new picture and it can tell you if it has a cat or not. And so when we get to IoT, the thing that is really helpful is that you're actually starting to gather data, not only through software. You're starting to gather data from devices that are out in the world. And you can start to have interfaces with users, not only through software, but also through like IoT devices. And so it kind of opens up this space of the ways to gather data and the ways to interact with users through connected devices and not only through screens and software.
0: I want to return to this question of understanding the underlying model and the algorithms that led to that model and being able to use them, right? Like being able to intuit what the outcome would be or can be. One thing that we talked about on a recent episode was you know, most people in computer science think that it's like very good for you to know computer science fundamentals, how memory operates on your board, you know, all the ones and zeros, assembly, C, et cetera. And my argument was sort of like, well, it's actually better to learn the abstractions all the way up the stack without really understanding what's going on underneath of it so that you can do something interesting. And I guess I'm just curious, is there something comparable to that in data science? Is there a way to start building up an intuition around what the most fundamental abstractions are without actually understanding sort of numerically what they're doing?
1: My answer is a little bit of a cop-out because it's the correct abstractions depend on what it is you're trying to do, right? And so if you're trying to solve a business problem, like if you're a developer, and you're working on a software product, and you think that maybe the product would benefit from having some machine learning in there, that there could be some predictions that could be made that would improve the system, then knowing the specific details of what's going on under the hood in every algorithm is probably not essential for you to be able to answer that question. But knowing like, what types of problems can machine learning solve? So first question you can ask is like the thing that we want to make predictions about Do we have historical data available that we would be able to use for training? Do we have a bunch of times where this is already known (laughs) what the output was for some given inputs that we can throw into a model training process so that then in the future when we only have the inputs and we want to make the predictions, get the outputs, we're able to do that? A lot of the time people think that, oh, if you just dump all of the data in, the machine learning is going to kind of figure out the correlations and it'll understand the right thing to do. But if it's a situation where you haven't actually observed the things that you want to be able to predict, if you've never observed them in the past, then like you have nothing to train on, right? All you can do is kind of look at historical data and say, okay, this is what normally happens. And then this is what's called unsupervised learning. When you don't have any labels on the data, you just have a bunch of data. And so then you can say, this is what the data typically looks like. And you can do things like anomaly detection or clustering. You can say, like, these look like really weird cases. This looks different from what I've seen in the past. Or it looks like this group is similar to that group. But you don't have any labels of like group one, group two, group three, or like output values. And so you can't follow that same type of predictive modeling approach that I was talking about before with the input output pairs.
0: The other question I wanted to ask was around because so far what you've mentioned is you've got kind of a number of algorithmic tools, I guess you could call it, like linear regression is, I guess, an algorithmic tool. It's a training algorithm, right? Yeah. But then you've also got these things that are like, you said that putting the problem into an analytical framework, I assume that means, for example, you know, human beings have like two eyes, right? Generally speaking. And so it's like one way to kind of check if an animal is a human being versus like a spider is to say, okay, well, if it has eight eyes, it's not a human being, right? Is inserting that kind of Knowledge rule, I guess you would call it, or like abstract principle, possible common something that you do regularly.
1: Yeah, so definitely, there's a lot of places in machine learning systems where it makes sense to insert subject matter expertise and kind of like a priori knowledge into the way that you're setting up the system.
0: A priori knowledge. <laughs> I like that. That's
1: what I was. Uh, That's why we have people on the show. <laughs> When it comes to this kind of like analytical framing of the problem, it's really saying what is the data that we can use as input data and what are the predictive statements that we want to be able to make. So like in this human versus spider example, it's like, are we trying to label something as a human? Are we trying to count how many eyes it has? Are we trying to figure out how big of a picture it is? Are we trying to like identify whether it has a face or not? Like each of these is actually a slightly different Problem and like the statement that you're making is either like a probability or like a yes, no, or like classified in one of these five groups. Like, and so depending on the way that you choose to set up the problem that way, the way that you're going to prepare the historical data, the labels that you're going to need to have on it, and then like the way that you can use those outputs is going to be completely different. And so, this is the part that I refer to as more like the art of data science is like, how do you even set up the problem? most effectively, to solve the problem that you want to solve for the users that you want to be using those outputs.
0: Eric is reminding me that we should define a priori, which basically means things known before the fact,
1: right? Correct. Correct. Exactly. My nerd tendencies come out strong sometimes accidentally. Uh,
2: I always say that there are five people at SmartLogic who add to my vocabulary every week. So I'm all for it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Which is like a quarter of the team. So that's pretty good, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Sunday, you have something you wanted to ask?
2: Yeah, I wanted to take us in a little bit or change gears a little bit. We're, We're talking about, you know, where data science kind of, where the traditional path was or is, how you got into it. And I'm curious what you might think is the future of data science and potentially even is NX, you know, this new project from Jose, a part of that? Can you foresee that? What are your initial reactions to NX?
1: Yeah, so future of data science. The field is growing so fast right now. There's a lot of subdisciplines that are starting to form. Like the term data scientist has become almost like so generic that it's meaningless at this point because it could mean 50 different things depending on the company where you are and the specific role you have. I know I mentioned earlier that like data scientists are so deep in Python land right now. And so to be able to, I love having data scientists work really closely with software engineers. And like when I've been working on my most recent project that I was mentioning with the Elixir backend, I was working really closely with, you know, the Elixir developers, especially on the like data pipeline side of things. And I think that overall data science has not been as software engineering minded <laughs> in our development practices, as I would like to see. This is one of the reasons that I joined Veris because I know that Vary is kind of extremely opinionated about agile software development practices and helping to include machine learning in that agile kind of loop and also include hardware in that agile loop. And so the places where I see Elixir particularly playing the greatest role in these types of machine learning systems. So far, the experiences I've had have been more on the like data pipeline side, like helping to take the data from the source <laughs> that it's arriving from, especially you know, if it's coming off of queues and this type of thing, being able to do this type of like really scalable streaming processing and maybe even include some of the transformations, calculations. We call it feature engineering a lot of the time. That can happen like, in the Elixir backend as it's processing the data. It can be like computing extra fields that the machine learning models need. And then also before when I was speaking about like inference, where we're actually like pinging the models and needing to get you know, those predictions back, then Elixir can act as like the inference <laughs> pipeline. And so now with NX, it sounds like I was mentioning before that all machine learning is really like linear algebra, when you get down to it under the hood, like most of it is, it sounds like it's starting to make those linear algebra calculations and computations really, really effective in Elixir. So I would imagine that the next step after that is to start to build machine learning libraries on top of that fundamental capability. One kind of caution I would give is that data scientists on average are not going to be as good software engineers as definitely as an average elixir developer is let's say (laughs) and so we might be a little slow too (laughs) we're slower learning new languages we're slowing like picking things like that up sometimes but
0: the thing that comes to mind is i just heard about in last year they accomplished for the first time in a lab uh, room temperature superconduction and the way they did this was basically by like squeezing an atom in a diamond vise and the guy was like, yeah, I think we can commercialize this in like five to 10 years. Right. Which is groundbreaking. But at the same time, like it's not like a we all have just diamond vices, you know, lying around. And I kind of imagine that like data scientists from academia, like come into the software kind of world. And they're like, OK, we have like the computational equivalent of a diamond vice that's able to give us really good predictions. And the software engineer is like, yeah, well, I need to like deliver that to someone's house. You know, that's just a digression. I wanted to ask you, because we're talking about NX, basically what I, what my understanding of NX is, is that it's it allows you to deal with multidimensional data and do numerical computation on that data. And so the word that comes up in this context is tensor. And maybe you could define what a tensor is for us and maybe compare that with, a, is a vector the smaller version of a tensor?
1: Yeah. So there's the mathematical definition of the tensor, which is a little bit confusing, and maybe I won't go into that side of it, but there's a package called TensorFlow in Python, which is a very popular like deep learning package. And the way that they use the word tensor really is the same as you were using the word matrix before. And so this is essentially like a table of numbers. You can think of it kind of like an Excel spreadsheet, rows and columns. And so a vector is typically like a one-dimensional matrix. So you could think of it as like a list of numbers. So vector is like, there's only like, say a, a table with only one column in it, and a whole bunch of rows, or like only one row and a whole bunch of columns, that would be a vector. A matrix is like a table with a bunch of rows and a bunch of columns. And then there are these mathematical objects called tensors. But in the context that it's used in, in like, most machine learning settings, we're probably talking about vectors or matrices but you can also think about like multi-dimensional matrices like like a cube or something like that
0: so a vector is a single dimensional set and a tensor is a multi-dimensional set is it? or yeah that's a fair summary i think okay okay sunday do we have one more i will honestly want to do this all day so
2: (laughs) he does he does especially when we get into math for all he says about at being traumatized by 10th and 11th grade math justice is here to talk about math all day
0: H. her name was misca's h which is hard to spell so i won't try and she <laughs> traumatized two years in a row it was like how did i get the same teacher two years in a row <laughs> completely ruined math for me and i feel like a dummy now because of it so but it's an honor to talk to you sunday go ahead
2: yeah, I think the last big thing is when we were kind of researching to chat with you, we realized that it maybe is not an everyday thing for somebody to keynote ElixirConf with a talk about machine learning. So can you speak a little to how you decided to do that and how that came about?
1: So I work pretty closely with Justin Schneck, who is Justin's pretty... Justin Schneck?
0: Sorry, I'm just kidding. I love that. <laughs>
1: Is this his nickname that I need to start?
0: <laughs> I don't know. I, I hope he's okay with it. I'm so sorry,
1: Justin. <laughs> I, if I to say that, I yeah. It. So we work at the same company, and he knew that I had been like working on this product that had a pretty heavy Elixir back end, and it was a machine learning product. And he was like, "Have you thought about applying to talk at ElixirConf?" And I was like, you know, I'm not an Elixir developer, right? Like, I mean, I know some of the basic terms now. I've been working with Elixir developers a lot. Like, I can talk all day about machine learning. And he's like, just apply, just give it a try, you know? And so then I did. And they said, would you like to keynote? And I was like, oh, thanks for the recommendation, Justin, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, it was really fun. And then I was thinking really about my, you know, my coworkers. And like, when I talked to them about machine learning and like, What do I want to be conveying, you know, about machine learning for my software developer coworkers? And so that's why in my ElixirConf talk, I added this little section in the middle called like how data scientists think about data. And so some of the stuff I was talking about today about the inputs and outputs and whatnot, if you want like maybe a more clear and like visually illustrated version of that, you can check out, go Google Jen Gamble ElixirConf 2020 or whatever on YouTube and you'll see a better description than what I gave
2: verbally. We'll have the link as well. But it's still amazing to have you here. Definitely. Again, thank you so much. The ElixirConf conversation is just so interesting because we actually were predicting here on Elixir Wizards in 2021 that the rest of 2021 will be pretty heavily machine learning focused for the rest of the year. We're seeing that as a trend. People are talking about it more, partially because of NX, partially just because the community is trending in that way. So we really were excited to have you on to talk about this. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: We didn't even get in genetic algorithms, which is what the most recent book or maybe not the most recent book, but the, definitely the book with a lot of the hype is getting. Next All time. Right. <laughs> next time. And there will be a next time. Before we let you go, we like to give the guests the last few minutes to make any final plugs or asks for the audience where people can find you, support you, et cetera. So the floor is yours.
1: Probably my biggest plug is that we're hiring right now at varies not only in data science and machine learning, but Elixir, Python, Ruby, like a lot of different back end. If you're a designer and you're listening to this podcast, if you're a product manager, yeah, we're hiring all across the board right now. So definitely check us out and we can kind of nerd out more on these topics.
0: (laughs) That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to our guest, Jen Gamble from Very, for joining us today. And thank you to my co-host, Sunday Mint. Thank you to my producer, Eric Ostrich and our executive producer, Rose Burt. Elixir Wizards is a Smart Logic production. We get production and promotion assistance from Michelle McFadden and Sinai Daniel. Here at Smart Logic, we're always looking to take on new projects, building web apps in Elixir, Rails, and React. Infrastructure projects using Kubernetes and mobile apps using React Native and Lord willing, one day machine learning projects using Elixir. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a project we could help you with, don't forget to like and subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast player follow smart logic that's at smart logic on twitter for news and episode announcements we also have a new discord channel so if you'd like to join us over there look for the link on the podcast page or head over to smr.tl wizards hyphen discord for the invite link and don't forget to join us again next week for more on adopting pd lookser